Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishopbriggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National, date 1st October 2021, from the News section. Outfits made from recycled materials unveiled for COP26 volunteers. By Gregor Young. Uniforms that will be worn by about a thousand volunteers at the COP26 climate conference have been unveiled at the Scottish event campus in Glasgow. The SEC complex will host the gathering of world leaders for two weeks from October 31st and those attending will be greeted by volunteers from across Scotland. Volunteers will wear uniforms made from recycled, sustainable fabrics made by Falkirk-based company Lion Safety. Glasgow City Council received 10,000 COP26 volunteer applications. The youngest of the successful applicants is aged 16 and the oldest aged 78. More than 40% of the volunteers live in the host city, with a third under the age of 26 and a fifth volunteer for the first time. They will work at transport and accommodation hubs, active travel routes and at the conference's green zone, which is open to the public. The uniforms include insulated jackets, soft shell jackets, fleeces, trousers, hoodies, polo shirts, gloves, a backpack and a warm hat. A tree will be planted for every volunteer uniform provided through a partnership with environmental charity One Tree Planted. Kirsten McEwen, who lives in Glasgow and will be volunteering at COP26 as a team leader, said, It's amazing to finally see the COP26 volunteer uniform and I'm delighted to be able to help unveil it. The choice to use a uniform made from recycled and sustainable materials is really important to highlight the everyday ways we can embody sustainability. And I look forward to seeing everyone wearing it throughout the conference. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 1st October 2021, from the Culture section. Funding Boost Secures Future of World's First Scientific Research Ship by Gregor Young The future of a famous ship which carried out expeditions crucial to modern climate science has been secured thanks to a £409,000 funding boost. The RSS Discovery was the world's first ship to be designed specifically for scientific research and carried out the first research in the Antarctic under the renowned sailor and explorer Captain John Falcon Scott, better known as Scott of the Antarctic. Observations and research gathered on Scott's first Antarctic expedition in 1901 continue to inform modern climate science. Now, the 120-year-old ship 
has been safeguarded from severe deterioration. The National Heritage Memorial Fund has donated the money to the Dundee Heritage Trust, which operates Discovery Point Museum, where the ship is berthed, to carry out urgent repairs. The, Trish, the Trust commissioned specialist ship surveyors, who estimated £1.3 million of work is needed for repairs and to prevent future damage. The funding covers the first stage of this, including repairing timbers, upgrading stanchions to prevent rainwater leaking into the hull, and recalking to ensure the ship is watertight. Dr Simon Cook, University of Dundee Senior Lecturer in Environmental Change, said, Both the data and samples collected by Scott's expedition more than 100 years ago provide valuable long-term context for modern climate science. He said, This gives us a window back for more than 100 years. That's where the real value is from this. It just gives the long-term context. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 4th October 2021, from the Politics section. Child poverty targets in danger of being missed, charity says as benefits cut. By Jane Cassidy. The Scottish Government must take urgent action to avoid missing its own child poverty targets by a significant margin, leaving families across the country locked in poverty, a major social policy research and development charity has said. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation, or JRF, admits the situation is made all the more pressing by the UK Government's cut to universal credit but says the Scottish Government must stop walking and start running on child poverty by immediately doubling the Scottish child payment. The JRF kicked off Child Poverty Week with the release of its annual State of the Nation report, Poverty in Scotland 2021. It looks at poverty levels just before COVID-19 pandemic and the JRF says it highlights a lack of significant change among the priority groups for action identified by the Scottish Government. These include families from an ethnic minority background, families where someone is disabled, those with a child under the age of one, and single parent households. Key findings for these groups include more than 80% of children in poverty in Scotland are in one of these groups. Some 100,000 children in poverty live in a household where someone is disabled. That's 40% of all children in poverty. Children from minority ethnic backgrounds make up 7% of the population, but 16% of all children in poverty. The report was produced alongside the End Poverty Scotland group an advisory group of people from across Scotland with first-hand experience of living on a low income. Group member Alec said, If over 80% of children in poverty are still in one of the priority groups, how much of a priority are we, really? The report urges both the Scottish and UK governments to increase social security support in order to drive down poverty levels. JRF recommends that the Scottish child payment is doubled as soon as possible 
and that the upcoming Tackling Child Poverty Delivery Plan must be set out in a clear and measurable course towards meeting those targets. It must include a far greater scale and pace of activity to support families in the priority groups who are most at risk of poverty, the JRF says. It says the UK government's cut to universal credit and working tax credit in just two days' time will cut £1,040 per year from the incomes of 450,000 families in Scotland. This cut will increase poverty in Scotland across all groups, not just families with children. The report says the UK government is responsible for 85% of social security spending in Scotland and the responsibility for the impact of this cut lies at their door. As well as reversing the cut, we recommend reform of rules such as the five-week wait for the first payment of universal credit and the two-child limit, which drive destitution and hardship in Scotland as they do in other parts of the UK. Chris Burt, Associate Director of JRF in Scotland, said the Scottish Government has rightly set a national mission to end child poverty and has put in place steps to move us in the right direction. But we are on course to miss our targets by some distance. It is time for the Scottish Government to stop walking and start running by immediately doubling Scottish child payment and by significantly increasing the scale and pace of its programme to support families in priority groups. The responsibility for the cut to universal credit falls squarely at the UK government's door. It is a failure of both compassion and of policy and will cause immediate and widespread hardship in Scotland. With reserved powers comes reserved responsibility. Our social security system should protect people from poverty, but the UK government is instead choosing to condemn them to it. John Dickey, director of the Child Poverty Action Group in Scotland, said The JRF report lays out in the starkest terms the damage poverty wrecks in families and children across Scotland. These statistics and individual voices of people who experience poverty day in, day out, must act as the loudest possible warning bell to both the UK and Scottish governments. The Prime Minister must scrap the £20 a week universal credit cut. And here in Scotland, the First Minister's welcome commitment to doubling the Scottish child payment must be brought forward as a matter of utmost urgency. That article was by Jane Cassidy. This article is from The National, date 4th October 2021, from the News section. COP26. Extinction Rebellion warn no choice over Glasgow disruption. By National News Desk. Extinction Rebellion activists have said they have no choice but to cause disruption in Glasgow during COP26. Thousands of delegates, world leaders and media will descend on the city during the first two weeks of November for the Climate Summit, which has been held at the SEC and thousands of demonstrators are planning a march through the city on November 6th. However, members of Extinction Rebellion have indicated that targeted disruption is coming. 
One rebel who identified as Ruth D during an interview with Radio Clyde News said, As usual, we're going to be doing some of the things that we're famous for. We'll be doing targeted disruption. And I say targeted because we consult with disadvantaged communities to see how we can avoid disrupting their lives. She added, Obviously, there are disruptions that I can't talk about because we always plan things that are quite secretive, I suppose. And we couldn't give away our plans. Otherwise, the police would instantly know and prevent them. Police have previously issued a warning to the group ahead of such behaviours. On Saturday, activists from the group appeared to breach security during a protest at Farnborough Airport in Hampshire. They claimed to block all entrances during their demonstration against emissions from private jets ahead of the climate summit. Footage posted by the group appears to show activists using wire cutters to break into the grounds through a perimeter fence. According to the official Extinction Rebellion website, <clears throat> the group will support disruptive action in Glasgow as far as possible without overcommitting on resources. Ruth accepted that many people may be fed up with the protesting, but said that severity of the situation meant there are no alternatives. She said, Disruption seems to be the only thing that really gets the government's attention because they really, really don't like it. We tried petitions. We tried protest marches. We tried talking to MPs and MSPs. And it was always the same response. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, we care. But basically, we're not going to do anything about it. That's what we found. And because we care so much, we are willing to put ourselves on the line and be disruptive. She continued, I can totally understand why people are fed up of this. I totally get that. But there are two things I would say. The first one is, this is how bad the situation is. We're heading for 3.5 degrees. And by the end of the century, uh, that's disaster. That's runaway climate change that you cannot stop. And we're on target to exceed the limits that we agreed at the last COP25 in Paris. We're way over that. So the situation is really severe. That article was by National News Desk. This article is from The National. Date 4th October 2021. From the Culture section. Sam Huchen to fund new boost for students at Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. By Craig Meehan. Scottish actor Sam Huchen is to fund a new project to bring creative ideas to life at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Right Start, the Sam Huchen Creative Commission launches today and is designed to encourage students from across Scotland's National Conservatoire to collaborate and expand their skills and creative ambitions across the disciplines of music, drama, dance, production, film and education. The student or team of students behind the successful submission will receive £5,000 to help bring their vision to life, as well as mentoring support from Huchen and industry professionals. The new initiative, part of RCS's 175th anniversary celebrations in 2022, is open to all undergraduate and postgraduate students at RCS, 
a world's top three destination to study the performing and production arts. Huchen said, there are so many wonderful disciplines here at the Conservatoire and collaboration between the art forms can be really interesting. It's important for students to think outside the box. Maybe a ballet dancer has a burning ambition to be a writer or just has a really good idea. In the current climate, but also in the modern world, you can't be quite so rigid about one profession. From my own career, I've realised that there's a lot of fluidity. You might find that there are other avenues that you can explore uh, that you didn't even think about that can also help support your chosen career. It energises you and keeps you adaptable to the industry. When we see people from all walks of life or different departments collaborating on something, that's when real creativity can shine. Huchen's advice to interested students is to jump in there and give it a go. He goes on, I've started writing a little bit. I never thought I'd be a writer. I never thought I could do it. But once you sit down and start, it just surprises you. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the students come up with. Write Start is open to students from any discipline who can submit a pitch for a performance, such as a play, a musical, film, opera, performance piece, ballet, or an innovative production idea. All finalists will receive £500, which should be used to help progress their idea. The winner will be announced in early 2022, receiving feedback on their work in a mentoring session with Huchen and industry experts, and will be asked to develop a full script, book score or model. The winner will be given a slot in summer 2022 to either present a performance to an audience or to see their idea shared with industry professionals. That article was by Craig Meehan. From the National of Tuesday the 5th of October 2021 from the comment section We Ginger Duck here is the weakness that will be Boris Johnson's undoing. The triumphalism of the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, with Boris Johnson enjoying a crushing majority in the Commons, with no challenger to his position as party leader even on the horizon, and despite the shortages and empty shelves exacerbated by Brexit, still maintaining a polling lead over a hapless and divided Labour Party, disguised a profound weakness which is likely to prove Johnson's undoing. The Conservatives love power above all else. Johnson has delivered for them, giving the party its largest majority since Thatcher. His recent ruthless cabinet reshuffle was designed to bolster his position even further, promoting talentless political hacks such as the publicity-chasing Nadine Dorries, whose sole qualification for a post appears to be her unswerving loyalty to Johnson and her willingness to outdo even Pretty Patel in the nastiness stakes. For all that, the Conservatives currently appear unchallenged as the dominant party in UK politics, 
This has been achieved by repositioning the Tories as a party of a hardline, uncompromising Brexit. They have abandoned the traditional paternalistic unionism of the past in favour of a so-called muscular unionism, which is deeply centralising and which has no respect for Scottish or Welsh sensibilities or the devolution settlement and which is indistinguishable from English nationalism, even as it wraps itself in an increasingly fetished union flag. As they celebrate in Manchester, it will be the Conservatives' English nationalist hubris which will prove to be their eventual undoing. There will be challenges ahead in the coming winter which will certainly go a long way to stripping the Conservatives of their smugness, although not their Tory MP Andrew Bowie for whom smugness represents the totality of his personality. The vaccination programme is stalling just as the normal winter rise in respiratory disease starts to get underway. Experts warn the UK is not out of the worst of the pandemic just yet and these challenges are compounded by the own goal of fuel and food shortages which have been exacerbated by the British government's failure to plan properly for the inevitable labour shortages created by Brexit and the immense strains this has caused on the UK's relationships with its European neighbours. Aided by a sympathetic media, the Conservatives have tried to deny these problems as anything to do with Brexit and are entirely due to the pandemic. But it is an inescapable fact that at the very worst moment in history, the British government made an ideologically and party politically driven decision, a decision which arose from the Conservatives' adoption of an aggressive right-wing English nationalism to shrink the UK's potential pool of labour and abandon a smooth and friction-free system of trading with the UK's closest neighbours and largest markets for a costly and bureaucratic system characterised by delays, expense and considerable paperwork. But hey, blue passports and imperial measures. However, it is Scotland which is Johnson's Achilles' heel. Not only have the Conservatives failed to dominate the political landscape here in the way they have in England, but the means they have chosen to achieve that dominance in England fatally undermines them in Scotland, and that in turn holds any future Better Together MK2 campaign below the waterline before it is even launched. Gavin Barwell the Conservative peer and former Chief of Staff to Theresa May has admitted that the current Scottish Government has a cast-iron mandate for another independence referendum. A total of 72 of the seats in Holyrood were won by candidates from the SNP or the Scottish Greens, standing on a clear and unequivocal platform for a second referendum. 
The Labour, Conservative and Lib Dem candidates stood on a platform of opposition to another referendum. But despite a well-organised and coordinated anti-independence tactical voting campaign, they failed to come close to depriving the pro-independence and pro-referendum parties of a convincing majority. Johnson's Scottish problems, which Anglo-centric commentators south of the border largely overlook, are twofold. First of all, his government has failed to come up with some sort of argument for denying Scotland the second independence referendum, for which there is an unarguable democratic mandate that will not backfire and end up boosting support for independence. This is why the Times newspaper recently reported that UK ministers have been instructed not to talk about Scottish independence or the Scottish constitutional issue. That is because no such argument exists. If one did exist, we'd have heard about it by now. Any reason Johnson gives for refusing another referendum merely informs Scotland that the democratic choices of the Scottish electorate will not be respected in the UK. And if Scotland cannot be a democracy within the UK, then what is the point of the UK? Johnson can only resist another referendum by destroying the basis of traditional Scottish unionism, the understanding that Scotland is a member of a voluntary union, a union which it entered voluntarily and which it has the right to leave should it ever choose to do so. The UK government seeks to replace this with a conception of a union founded upon compulsion in which it doesn't matter what Scotland chooses. By making such a fundamental change to the nature of the Union, and moreover by doing it unilaterally and without even the pretense of consultation with the people of Scotland, Johnson risks putting rocket boosters under the case for independence. Johnson's second Scottish problem arises when the second independence referendum campaign officially gets underway, as it most certainly will at some point during this Scottish parliamentary term. This is a Conservative government which has spent the past few years imposing an English nationalist Brexit on an unwilling Scotland, without taking into account the needs or wants of Scotland, and which has sidelined the Scottish Government every step along the way. It has been trying to thwart the clear democratic will of the Scottish electorate and has unilaterally undermined the devolution settlement. This means it has no clear and convincing narrative to tell the people of Scotland during the next referendum campaign. No one will believe any promises of UK reform or of stronger devolution. No one will put any credence and claim Scotland will be respected in the UK or have an influential role in shaping British government policy. The English nationalism upon which the triumphalism of the Conservatives in Manchester rests is also the fatal weakness which will lose the Conservatives the next Scottish independence referendum and lead to Boris Johnson going down in history as the man whose English nationalist arrogance 
led to the breakup of the UK. This article was by Wee Ginger Dunk from The National of Tuesday the 5th of October 2021. Jerry Hassan. This is how Tories can be taken out of government. The Tories' problems mount by the day. There are fuel and food shortages evoking the 1970s, a Brexit that seems only to be delivering problems, and in Boris Johnson, a Prime Minister who seems to know and care little about detail and the real lives of people. Despite all of this, and more, the Tories are still in the lead in the polls, and the odds remain against Labour winning the next election outright. Labour have a mountain to climb to do that, and that election could be as little as a year and a half away, coming in April or May 2023, once the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is abolished. Labour suffered their worst defeat since 1935 last time around and need to win 124 more seats next time than they did in 2019 for a bare majority, a number the party has only done twice in post-war times in 1945 and 1997. This would need a swing of 10.5% from Tories to Labour more than even in 1997, and a shift that only occurred once in 1945. Without a Scottish recovery, this rises to a 13.8% swing. The best Labour can hope is to deprive the Tories of a majority. This only requires the Tories, taking Sinn Féin abstentionism into account, to lose 41 seats, to lose their majority, and according to political watcher Mike Smithson, 47 seats to lose office, given the Tories are uncoalitionable, raising the prospect of a minority Labour government. Labour need to start talking about this political issue now and reach out to the other main anti-Tory parties, SNP, Lib Dems, Plaid Cymru and the Greens, who themselves need to start addressing the politics of a hung parliament and how the Tories might be excluded from office. There is a deep-seated Labour ostrich in the sand approach to not talking about this, based on the grip of Labour conservatism, attachment to first-past-the-post and fear of not looking like a winner. Yet this needs addressing now, not left to an election campaign or its aftermath, as Danny Finkelstein raised last week in The Times, writing of Labour, quotes, what they cannot do is wait until the election comes and then jump out from behind the sofa and shout, surprise, it has to start preparing voters now, end of quotation. That entails Labour thinking how it will deal with the SNP and Lib Dems and win their parliamentary support, and that involves two big issues, the holding of an Indy Ref and the introduction of proportional representation. On the first, Finkelstein observes, there is a perfectly good argument for a further Scottish vote and the Tories will be pressed on it too. 
And on the second, Labour embracing PR could ditch the Tories, whose electoral preeminence owes a great deal to the electoral system, and reposition the hung parliament as a new way of doing politics. The forces of inertia in Labour are often underestimated and in response to Finkelstein were given voice by Alec Massey who stated that in a hung parliament a minority Labour government should offer nothing to the SNP, instead inviting them to put up or shut up, vote with or vote down a Labour administration. This argument is as old as the first ever Labour government and doesn't stand up to the fact. There have been three minority Labour administrations, 1924, 1929-31, 1974, and all were short-term affairs followed by subsequent elections. In two of the three, Labour were defeated at the election and the Tories, or a Tory-dominated government, returned. In only one of the three, October 1974, a majority Labour government then followed, with a majority of three seats it subsequently lost. Labour and the anti-Tory parties need to remember that first past the post, FPTP, aids conservative dominance, yet Labour cling to FPTP in the belief that it will once in a while return a Labour government. There is the need to start facing these issues in preparation for the heat and noise of an election campaign. In that, the Tories and their press allies will make various smears about the spectre of a minority Labour government being held hostage by the SNP and that this will lead to division, constitutional wrangling and that tiresome cliché, a coalition of chaos. Such rhetoric paid dividends for the Tories in 2015, winning over UKIP voters and inadvertently giving David Cameron a majority which ultimately destroyed him. Then, Tory strategists were able to make hay with the prospect of SNP influence over Labour, when many thought Ed Miliband could win outright and the SNP were but a small force in Westminster. Both factors will not be in play in 2023 and give more ammo to the Tories. This reinforces the case for preparing now. For Labour, this requires embracing the politics of democratisation now, embracing PR, abandoning FPTP and doing so boldly on principle, not expediency. It means recognising that the British constitution is irredeemably broken, serves the interests of the Tories, and that Scotland has a right to an indie ref. This requires the SNP and others get serious about the politics of change and cooperation and how they nurture a progressive alliance and make common cause against the Tories to dismantle the rotten, undemocratic, gerrymandered British constitutional order which serves the interest of one party. 
The above requires a seismic shift in labour, which hasn't happened yet in its history, but many in the party know it cannot go on as it has done, losing four elections in a row and with party members massively in favour of ditching FPTP and embracing PR, there is a mood for change. The brazen nature of Tory rule and its self-interest and arrogance is directly linked to the undemocratic nature of the British state. Labour need to think about how to aid the Tories losing the next election and how they will work with the SNP and Lib Dems. Similarly, the SNP need to start thinking about how they position themselves in Westminster to achieve maximum influence. Labour need to not shy away from these issues, but challenge the elective dictatorship which aids the Tories and recognise that another NDRF may come sooner rather than later. This article was by Jerry Hassan. From the National, Tuesday 5th of October 2021, from the Sports section. Craig Levine fears players could go to court for tackles like Porteous versus Rangers by James Kearney. Ryan Porteous' straight red card against Rangers on Sunday has provoked much debate in Scotland, with fans and pundits alike each offering their views on the incident. There are those that are adamant that the Hibs defender deserved his dismissal at Ibrox as he lunged in on Joe Aribo while others insist that referee Nick Walsh was too hasty in sending the Scotland under-21 internationalist for an early bath. Hibs have appealed the decision, and a three-strong Scottish FA panel will determine if Porteous' red card will be upheld. But Levine fears that similar challenges in the future could result in footballers taking each other to court. This is interesting for me because I believe when we played Kevin Harper and John Collins, there were some really tough tackles, Levine recalled in BBC Sports Sound. It was just accepted and you were on your guard all the time because there was always a chance somebody, as we said at the time, was going to try and do you. You were actually more alert back then than I think players are nowadays about this sort of thing. I think that down the line, the next really horrific tackle where some players get seriously injured, I think this could go to court. That's where I think this might lead. If somebody makes a reckless challenge on another player, I think it could go beyond football. And that's something we have to be very careful of. I think he, Porteous, just needs to have a look at the way he plays the game in that particular aspect of his football. He's a good player. He's got a decent pace. He doesn't need to go to ground. I think he's got the tools to be a really good player, but he needs to eradicate this from his game. That article was by James Kearney. From the National, Tuesday the 5th of October 2021, from the Sports section. Josh Kerr targets 1500 metre world record after Olympic Games bronze at Tokyo 2020 by Susan Egelstaff. It's never previously been on Josh Kerr's radar, but this summer he's realised that if he wants to become the very best 1500 metre on the planet, his next target must be to break the world record. Kerr's run in the Olympic Games final last month, in which he set a new personal best of 3 minutes 29.05 seconds to claim bronze, was impressive. But he knows that to take the step up to the next level, he needs to set his sights far higher. 
This summer has seen three of the distance's top 10 fastest times ever recorded, with Olympic champion Jakob in Britiston, silver medalist Timothy Cheriot and Spaniard Mohamed Katir all writing themselves into the history books. Kerr currently sits in 18th place on the list, which is nothing to be sniffed at, but the 23-year-old is well aware that he must get closer to the current world record of 3 minutes 26 seconds set by Hicham El Girouge in 1998, if he is to add further to his medal tally. Looking at the shape of 1500 meter running currently, if you're not going after the world record, you're doing something wrong, Kerr says. That's never really been on my radar before, but that's the way it's going with the event. That's where you have to be looking. The 1500 meter is hard right now. It's a hard event to be the best in the world at. So the next big idea is to see if I can get close to the 326 mark. Being in the shape to do that after a couple of rounds of the championship is the thing that's most important, and the next thing that's vital if you want to win 1500 meter gold. Having had almost two months to reflect on his performance in Tokyo, Kerr admits that he has found it impossible to feel unadulterated joy about his medal-winning run. It was not, he admits, a flawless championship. He was almost eliminated in the heats, only scraping through as a fastest loser, and having arrived in Tokyo with his eyes on gold, there remains a tinge of disappointment at merely collecting bronze. However, the fact that at the age of only 23, he is likely to have numerous major championships left in him, gives him encouragement he will have plenty more opportunities to upgrade his bronze. It wasn't a perfect games for me, but I was able to perform when it was time to perform, which is key, so it was pretty good, he says. I'd like to think that in any other year I'd have won that, so it's tough to be completely happy with third place when you're in the shape to break Olympic records. It's bittersweet in a way to get a medal, but not the one you really want. It's a start, though. If I was at the end of my career, I'd definitely think differently about coming away with bronze, but right now I still have time to go back out there and get a better colour. Already, Kerr is thinking about next season which, unprecedentedly, will include World Championships, Commonwealth Games and European Championships. He is open about his lofty goals for 2022, although seems completely unburdened by the pressure of expectation that is now upon him. And yet he is in little doubt that the best is yet to come. The best thing is to only focus on the next competition, so for now I am completely focused on the World Champs, and then, as soon as that's done, my focus will switch to how to win gold in the Commonwealth Games. Then I'll see about the Europeans. If I can come away with two golds next year, it'll be a reasonably successful year, he says. The only pressure I feel is the pressure I put upon myself. I hold myself to quite a high standard, and I've put pressure on myself my whole career, so it doesn't feel much different now. Having spent a week in his home city of Edinburgh in what was his first trip back for over a year and a half, Kerr returned to his American training base in Seattle for the resumption of training yesterday. And having spent the past six years stateside, Kerr admits that in the short time anyway, it is difficult to see a return to the UK, particularly if his athletics continues to improve as it currently is. I'm not sure what will happen in the long term, but for now my setup is working very well, he says. My life is over there and I'm very happy there, so I don't have any plans to come back over here to train although I'd like to come back more to see my family, so hopefully the travel restrictions ease a little. 
It's not that I don't want to live in the UK. It's just that my life is developing in America. I'm working with a coach, Danny Mackey, who I really like working with, and things are going very well for me over there. That article was by Susan Egelstaff. From The National, Tuesday 5th of October 2021, from the Sports section. Marvin Bartley indicates he will not apologise for tweet on Kamara racist abuse by Herald and Times Sport. Scottish Football Association equality adviser Marvin Bartley has indicated that he will not apologise for a Twitter post that sparked anger in the Czech Republic following Rangers' Europa League defeat away to Sparta Prague last Thursday. After Ibrox midfielder Glenn Kamara was booed by a 10,000 crowd consisting overwhelmingly of schoolchildren, the Livingston assistant manager tweeted a photograph of decaying strawberries along with the words, The worst thing about the scenes in Prague last night is that I am not shocked in the slightest. In no way is this the fault of the children, because they're behaving in a way they see adults do stroke encourage. What chance do they have when placed in a bowl with rotten fruit? Czech Foreign Minister Jakub Kulhanik, who summoned the British ambassador to relay his feelings to Scottish football's governing body, called this week for the SFA to apologise and distance themselves from Bartley's comments. While it remains to be seen how the SFA will respond, Bartley, who has been in the forefront of the fight against racism in recent years, has made his stance clear. On his Instagram story, he posted a screenshot of Sky Sports' story about Kulhanek demanding an apology, with a segment of the song This Is Me by Keala Settle played in the background. The section of the tune Bartley posted has the lyrics Look out, cause here I come, and I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen, I make no apologies, this is me. This article was by Herald and Times Sport. From The National, Tuesday the 5th of October 2021, from the sports section. Scotland versus Israel. How many times have teams played and track record? By Sophie Parsons. Scotland will play Israel this weekend in the World Cup qualifiers, marking the two teams' seventh meeting in three years. It comes as Steve Clark's side continues their quest to qualify for Qatar 2022, after playing in their first major international tournament in 23 years at the Euro earlier this summer. With a crowd behind them at a packed Hamden Stadium, Scotland will look to extend their current lead over Israel in the Group F table. Although it's the Scots who currently hold second place, Israel is only one point behind, meaning everything is to play for in Saturday's match. The good news is that a home game has previously proved advantageous in head-to-heads, with the biggest crowd expected at Hamden since 2017. The team certainly won't be short of support. Here's what you need to know about the team's previous matches and Scotland's track record against Israel. How many times has Scotland played Israel? Since October 11th, 2018, Scotland has played Israel six times, with Saturday's match the seventh in almost exactly three years. Prior to 2018, the teams had not met since the 1980s, when they played twice in 1981 and once in 1986. What is Scotland's track record against Israel? Of the six matches in the past three years, Scotland has won two of the games. The first triumph 
came in the UEFA Nations League on November the 20th, 2018, when Scotland won 3-2 at Hampden in front of a 21,281-strong crowd. A draw behind closed doors in the same league came next in September 2020, followed closely by a win on penalties one month later during the UEFA European Championships qualifiers. Israel's win came on their home ground on October 11, 2018 and November 18, 2020. With another head-to-head incoming, Saturday's match is not the first time the teams have faced each other in this tournament. They played in Tel Aviv on March 28, 2021, drawing 1-1. This article was by Sophie Parsons. From the National, Friday the 8th of October 2021, from the news section... Angus Robertson shuts down BBC claim some EU nations have the same shortages as UK. Article written by Xander Richards. SNP Minister Angus Robertson has shut down assertions from the BBC that some of the countries in the EU are suffering the same food and fuel shortages as the UK. Robertson, the Scottish Cabinet Secretary for External Affairs, was appearing on the Good Morning Scotland radio programme when he blamed Brexit for the widespread shortages across several industries. He said, The reason for the shortages is quite simple. It's part of the more general population challenge that we have in Scotland. It's that Brexit has turned off the tap. It has seen a significant number of people return to the European continent and there are simply not enough people living here to fill important roles in our economy. A report from the Royal Bank of Scotland released on Friday shows a near-record number of job vacancies in the country, but also the second harshest drop in the number of applicants for permanent positions since the survey was first run in 2008. Robertson went on, The UK government is pretending that this is not a serious problem and is certainly denying that Brexit has a significant role in it. This was their decision. They decided to pursue a hard Brexit, to take us out of the single European market and end the freedom of movement. The BBC host then said that such work, worker shortages were being seen from America to Australia in countries that have nothing to do with Brexit. Robertson accepted that there was a worldwide labour shortage, but said it was only in Brexit Britain that were having such a noticeable and damaging impact. The Cabinet Secretary said, if we look at the examples of what this is leading to in terms of empty shelves, in terms of delivery problems, and so on, if one looks at our European continental neighbours, they are not suffering the same impact of these labour shortages. Some of them are, the BBC host then claimed. Robertson replied, No, I'm sorry, I spent some time this week actually looking at the reporting from state broadcasters from Poland to Germany to France to Italy and a number of others and not a single one of them was reporting the same level of problems that there were in the UK. Absolutely none of them. I know that government ministers in London want to pretend that this has nothing to do with Brexit. It has an awful lot to do with Brexit, and this is a problem for us. Confronted with the UK government's claims that the problems facing the UK are part of an adjustment period to a high-skilled, high-wage and post-Brexit economy, Robertson said he did not think Anyone in the real world really believes that. The SNP minister also said he had chaired a recent meeting of a population task force looking at the issue of depopulation in Scotland, but said that the limits imposed on the holiday's powers by the devolution settlement were preparing solutions working. He went on, 
the UK government has refused to meet with the Scottish government for the longest of times. 19 times in a row the immigration minister refused to meet the Scottish government. This week, for the first time, he deigned to speak to myself. Robertson met immigration minister Kevin Foster this week, but said he refused to accede to any of the top-level requests from the Scottish government, including a 24-month worker visa programme. He went on, We're not going to get it, and the reason we're not going to get it is because the UK government is not prepared to listen and to agree to proposals that are being made by the Scottish government. Robertson went on to say the only way Scotland can shore up its labour market is to become independent and return to the EU. And that was an article written by Xander Richards. From the National, Friday the 8th of October 2021. From the news section, B729, driver killed as van crashes into field in Dumfries and Galloway. By Laura Webster, a man has died after his van left the road and landed in a field. The crash happened on the B729 near Dunscore, Dumfries and Galloway, at about 4.10pm yesterday. Emergency services attended and the driver was pronounced dead at the scene south of Dunscore, near Throughgate. Police said no one else was in the black Citroen Nemo van and no other vehicles were involved. The road was closed in both directions while police investigated and it reopened at around 9.45pm. Sergeant Johnny Edgar of Police Scotland Road Policing Unit said Our inquiries are ongoing to understand why the van left the road and our thoughts are with the man's family and friends at this time. The van was travelling north towards Dunscore and we are eager to hear from anyone who may have seen it prior to the crash or witnessed the collision itself. Any drivers recording on the B729 yesterday afternoon with dashcam are asked to check their systems and provide any relevant footage to us as soon as possible. And that article was written by Laura Webster. From the National, Tuesday the 5th of October 2021, from the politics section, Boris Johnson told to stop talking by journalists during BBC Radio 4 interview. Article by Laura Webster. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was told to stop talking by a frustrated journalist during his first appearance on BBC Radio 4's Today programme in two years. During an interview with Nick Robinson, Johnson was challenged on current problems in supply chains, largely caused by a shortage of HGV drivers following the UK's exit from the EU. Johnson's broadcast rounds, ahead of his Conservative conference speech, saw him deny the situation as a crisis. The Tory leader argued that the shortage of lorry drivers was down to the industry's failures to encourage people to sign up for the job. Robinson cut off the Prime Minister to tell him he'd already made his point and added, Prime Minister, stop talking. We're going to have questions and answers, not where you merely talk if you wouldn't mind. Johnson told the journalist he'd be very happy to stop talking. During another appearance this morning, Johnson defended the £20 a week cut to Universal Credit the largest overnight cut to benefit in modern history. This government is doing the difficult long-term things, he told viewers. We got Brexit done, which was a very difficult thing to do, and we are now going to address the big underlying issues that face the UK. Long-term lack of productivity, long-term lack of investment in energy and infrastructure. 
We are going to fix that. That will have a big downward pressure in costs, and that is the way to tackle inflation. Johnson was also asked about protesters who had blocked roads during environmental demonstrations. The Prime Minister branded the activists irresponsible crusties and accused them of doing considerable damage to the economy. His comments came ahead of the Home Secretary Priti Patel's speech to the Conservative Party conference today, in which she will lay out new measures to deal with demonstrators deemed to be disruptive. The Home Secretary is expected to confirm plans for tougher powers against the likes of Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion in her conference speech. And that piece was by Laura Webster. From the National, Wednesday the 6th of October 2021, from the politics section, Nicola Sturgeon bets Douglas Ross £50 she won't quit before next election. By Xander Richards. Nicola Sturgeon has wagered Douglas Ross that she will not step down as First Minister before the next Holyrood election, according to reports. The £50 bet between the two party leaders reportedly came after Ross told the the Telegraph he expected the SNP leader to step down before 2026, as she currently just looks a bit fed up at times. I don't get the impression she wants to be there, he added. However, in a show of defiance revealed by anonymous sources to the Scottish Sun, the First Minister bet £50 she would be in place by the next election. The move reportedly came as the two waited to meet the Queen at the official opening of the Scottish Parliament last week. The SNP leader reportedly also made it a double or quits over who lasts longer at the head of their party. Sturgeon has so far outlasted two Scottish Tory leaders, with Ruth Davidson stepping down in 2019 and her replacement Jackson Carlaw being ousted after just a few months later in 2020. A source told The Sun, The First Minister came in and straight away she brought brought up the Telegraph story. Douglas said he stood by it, so Nicholas said he didn't want to have a bet over it. Douglas said, great, how much? There was a bit of back and forth and it settled on £50. Then Nicholas said, double or quits over who outlasts the other one, it's party leader. So they agreed on that too. The First Minister's spokesperson confirmed the story, saying Nicola was happy to challenge Mr Ross to put his money where his mouth is and to make it double or quits on who lasts longer as party leader. I bet she's more than confident of winning. The news comes after Ross accepted an invitation put forward by the First Minister to visit some of Scotland's working class communities. And that article was by Xander Richards. From The National... Tuesday the 5th of October 2021, from the news section, Pandora Papers, Behind the Financial Secrets of the Rich and Powerful, by Martin Hannan. What's the story? A deluge of stories have begun to surface following the release of the Pandora Papers that reveal hidden wealth, tax avoidance and, in some cases, money laundering by some of the world's richest and most powerful people. The data was obtained by International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, in Washington DC, which has been working with more than 140 media organisations on its biggest ever global investigation, with BBC Panorama and The Guardian leading the investigation in the UK. 
The files show that some of the most powerful people in the world use secret offshore companies to hide their vast wealth. In total, the amounts being concealed add up to the equivalent of the gross domestic product of large countries. As yet, no individual Scots or Scottish companies have been named, but the National understands that situation could alter, as more stories are published over the next few days and weeks. What are the most interesting revelations? More than 330 politicians from 90 countries are named in the Pandora Papers, which are so named after Pandora, the female figure in Greek mythology, that opened her eponymous box and released all the evils of humanity. Former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair with his wife Cherie are alleged to have avoided paying £321,000 in stamp duty when they bought an office in London by purchasing the offshore company that owned it. The Tories shouldn't gloat. Chica Vismog's wife Helena is said to be one beneficiary of an offshore trust. According to the ICIJ, the Pandora Papers indicate that a holding company and a trust benefiting his spouse, Eleanor de Cher, owned pictures and paintings worth $3.5 million. Tory donors originating from Eastern Europe have also been named. The files also detail financial activities of Russian President Vladimir Putin's unofficial Minister of Propaganda and more than 130 billionaires from Russia, the United States, Turkey and other nations. Some 13 billionaires in the UK have been named. At least two US billionaires are already in trouble. ICIG reported that the American billionaires mentioned in the secret documents include two tech models, Robert F. Smith and Robert T. Brockman, whose trusts have been the targets of investigation by US authorities. Both were clients of Sill Trust, an offshore provider in Belize operated by Glenn Godfrey, a former Attorney General of Belize. Smith agreed last year to pay the US authorities $139 million to settle a tax probe and is cooperating with prosecutors. A US grand jury jury indicted Brockman, Smith's mentor and financial backer, in what prosecutors called the biggest tax fraud in US history. Smith has declined to comment. Brockman has pleaded not guilty. King Abdullah Jordan has denied that he spent £70 million on UK property through secret loan companies. The Czech Prime Minister, Andrzej Babis, facing an election later this week, allegedly failed to declare an offshore investment company used to purchase two villas for £12 million in the south of France. What's the scale of this? It's off the scale, actually. Like the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers, the Pandora Papers are a massively revealing source of information about the financial dealings of everyone, from supermodel Claudia Schiffer and Sir Elton John to the rulers of Jordan and Dubai. In Pakistan alone, some 700 individuals have been named. The Pandora Papers data leak consists of 2.94 terabytes of raw data with more than 6.4 million documents, almost 3 million images, more than 1.2 million emails and almost 1.4 million spreadsheets and other files. That's almost 12 million documents in total. They come from firms in 14 countries, including the British Virgin Islands, Panama, Belize, Cyprus, United Arab Emirates, Singapore and Switzerland. No wonder it took some 650 journalists in 117 countries many months to trawl through the files from the 14 sources, finding stories that have been 
published this week. That's the rub for all those named in the papers. The stories have only just started. What are the implications? Well, it won't be the end of capitalism as we know it, but it's likely that some very rich people are going to have to cough up a little of their wealth, if only to avoid going to jail. The problem is that for most of the people named in the papers, what they've done is perfectly legal. Their activities may stink morally and ethically, but the proper use of tax havens is not illegal. The ICIG admits many obstacles remain. Big banks, law firms and other powerful groups often oppose stronger transparency rules and tougher enforcement against offshore abuses. And that was an article by Martin Hannan. From the National, Wednesday the 6th of October 2021, from the news section, Pandora Papers, one of Scotland's biggest landowners named in data leak. By Martin Hannan, multimedia journalist, one of Scotland's biggest landowners has been named in the Pandora Papers for his alleged use of offshore companies to purchase property. Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, billionaire ruler of oil-rich Dubai, is alleged in the papers to have used offshore companies in his property dealings. The Sheikh is the owner of the Killian and Inverate estate in Westeros. There is no suggestion that the 63,000 acre estate was purchased via an offshore company, nor is there any allegation of illegality. Sheikh Mohammed rarely visits his Scottish estate, but fought and won a two year battle to build a six bedroom lodge on the estate, which already has 30 major. 30 manor, bedroom manor house and a 16 bedroom lodge with swimming pool plus helipads. He bought the estate more than 20 years ago for a reported £2 million, a small dent in his reported, reported fortune of £3 billion, which includes a massive Godolphin racing operation. The data was com- obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, based in Washington, D.C., which has been working with more than 140 media organisations and a total of 650 journalists on the 40 million documents that make up the papers. More than 330 politicians from 90 countries are named in the Pandora Papers and, and as the National reported yesterday, they included former Prime Minister Tony Blair and his wife Cherie are alleged to have avoided paying £321,000 in stamp duty when they bought an office in London by purchasing the offshore company that owned it. Also named in the papers was retail tycoon Sir Philip Green, whose wife is alleged to have spodged £70 million in property, even while his BHA's business was in trouble. It closed in 2016 with 11,000 jobs loss. The BBC reported, The couple spent tens of millions after selling the BHS chain, which went bust with a huge hole in its pension fund. The Greens declined to comment to the BBC, saying these were private matters. The privacy of offshore activities has riled most political parties except the Conservatives, who have been shown to accept huge donations from users of offshore tax havens. The party's co-chairman Ben Elliott was even named by the Daily Mail, the newspaper that constantly supports the Tories, for jointly owning a secret offshore film company in a tax haven. The Mail reported, At the centre of the new revelations is a British Virgin Island company, ENG Productions, said to be co-owned by Ben Elliott, the nephew of the Duchess of Cornwall, and his friend Ben Goldsmith, the financier, 
and Tory advisor brother of the Environmental Minister, Lord Zach Goldsmith. The Pandora Papers reveal ENG indirectly benefited from £121,000 of UK tax credits, which are funded by the taxpayer via HMRC. Scottish Greens finance spokesperson Ross Greer said, The revelations are shocking, but they are not surprising. For far too long, the UK has been at the heart of international dirty money and the tax avoidance industry. This is not an accident. The system is doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is to enrich the wealthy and powerful at the expense of the rest of us, robbing our public services of the funding they so desperately need. The Tories have shown time and again that they have no interest in fixing the system, and why would they for as long as the money keeps flowing into their party coffers? Last year, the Scottish Greens secured a ban on COVID bailouts for tax avoiders, but if we are to go further than we need, the powers to do so, the powers of a normal, independent nation. He added, if we are to build, build back a fairer, greener and more equal Scotland, then we must break from a system which puts tax avoidance and the wealth of the super-rich ahead of the well-being of our citizens. Only with independence can Scotland secure such a recovery. And that was a report by Martin Hannan. From the National, Wednesday the 6th of October 2021, from the news section, Scotland weather warning from Met Office as heavy rain and travel chaos looms. Piece by the National News Desk. Scotland is set to be battered by heavy rain and possibly flooding in the coming days. Following a report of the expected heavy rainfall and travel disruption on Thursday and Friday, the Met Office has extended the risk to Saturday. This means that the affected areas could be battered by rain for a period of 72 hours and the risk of travel disruption is likely. The initial affected area spread from Campbelltown to Fort William, but Saturday's warning has also stretched the chance of heavy rainfall and flooding in the south of Skye and Lochaber. The Met Office said, Rain will spread from the west during Wednesday evening, becoming persistent and heavy at times through Thursday and much of Friday, before easing by Saturday afternoon. Accumulations of 40 to 70 millimetres will build up quite widely within the 100 to 150 millimetres locally over high ground in Argyll and West Highland. Bus and train services are expected to take longer than usual. Spray and flooding on roads could also disrupt journeys. ScotRail has issued advice to customers telling them to plan their journey in advance. They said, Heavy rain is expected over the next few days, which could result in some flooding and possible disruption to travel. Take care when out and about. Please check your journey prior to travelling. The affected areas are Highlands and Islands Sire, Highland, Strathclyde, Argyll and Butte, East Ayrshire, Eastern Bartonshire, East Renfrewshire, Inverclyde, North Ayrshire, Renfrewshire, Western Bartonshire. And that was a report by the National News Desk. From the National, Tuesday the 5th of October 2021, from the Sports Section, UK Emergency HCV Driver Visa Scheme attracts fraction of needed workers. 
Article by Xander Richards. Just 27 people have applied to the Tory government's visa scheme for UHGV drivers touted as a solution to the staffing shortages hitting industries across the UK, according to reports. The number is just 9% of the 300 spaces which the Tories initially opened. They reported reportedly only did so after being assured by the industry that the staff to fill the roles were ready to go. The lack of response is said to have infuriated Downing Street. However, speaking on BBC Breakfast, the Prime Minister disputed the 27 figure, claiming instead that it was 127. Even so, the figure is fewer than half of the small number of visas currently available and suggests filling the further 4,700 to be released would be no easy feat. The news throws into doubt the UK government's plans to recruit 5,000 HGV drivers from abroad in the run-up to Christmas. The Prime Minister insisted that shortages were global, claiming that China is experiencing a similar issue and that the low visa uptake reflected this. Asked if he was worried about supply chain issues brought on by a shortage of HGV drivers, Johnson said, I think there are going to be difficulties that we have to address as the world economy wakes up and as the UK economy wakes up. He said his government wanted to see a change in the way things are done and he put the blame on the past management of the industry for its current problems. Johnson went on, You look over the back over the last two decades and you look at a profession like road hauling, they haven't been investing enough in people, they haven't been investing enough in facilities. Now is the time to make the change. Shortages in staffing of key industries including hospitality, haulage and health and social care, have become acute since the the Tories pushed through their hard Brexit deal. And that article is by Xander Richards. Recorded from the National on the 7th of October 2021 from the Culture section, Glasgow Elfin Grove Trail cancelled just days after it was announced by Maxine MacArthur. A highly anticipated Christmas elf trail in Glasgow has been cancelled. It Is On's Magical Elfin Trail Experience was announced as part of the return of Elfin Grove just last week. However, organisers confirmed the tour along the River Elven would no, be no longer be able to go ahead due to supply issues. The news will come as a blow for families who had been keen to take wee ones along to the West End event as children under the age of five are unable to take part in the ice skating experience. Creator Ollie Norman said, Unfortunately today we had to take the difficult decision to postpone the Elfin Trail for 2021. In the few weeks since announcing our magical trail, the global and local supply chain has become increasingly difficult and deteriorated beyond any of our predictions. It is really disappointing, but the right decision with everything going on out with our control and means we can focus on delivering the most epic ice experience Glasgow has had in years. The ice experience which is hoped will be Glasgow's answer to winter wonderland across the globe such as the Rockefeller Centre is set to continue. Event goers will skate under the stars on a fully covered purpose designed track from the world class team behind Somerset House and Dancing on Ice, whilst enjoying a festive soundtrack throughout through the decades from crooners to Christmas classics and marvelling at the stunningly lit Kelvin Grove Museum at Christmas. They'll also be able to enjoy a pit stop for hot chocolate at the world's first skate-up Marshmallow Cafe, plus festive food and drink in an epic covered bar area and the return of the legendary Silent Snow Disco, where you can sing, dance and get into the Christmas spirit as snow falls around you. 
Tickets will go on sale on Wednesday with day and night availability. It comes after the 2019 event was hit with criticism from customers who demanded a refund. For more information on the event, visit here. That article was by Maxine MacArthur. Recorded from the National on the 7th of October 2021. From the Culture section. Scott's author pens poignant story Shedding Light on Homelessness by Greg Russell. A Scots author and illustrator has penned a poignant story about homelessness and friendship to highlight the plight of those with no home. Debbie Glory, who is based near Haddington in East Lothian, wrote A Cat Called Waverley to coincide with next week's World Homeless Day. In it she tells of a little cat that belongs to no one until he is befriended and looked after by a young man called Donald. The two get along famously, but when Donald is sent away to fight in a distant war, the cat waits for him to return to Edinburgh's Waverley Station. He waits and waits for so long that travellers and railway staff name him Waverley and look after him. However, he is waiting for Donald, until one day, years later, the cat hears a voice he recognises. Warfare has drastically changed Donald's life, but when the pair are reunited, their world seems brighter and more hopeful. Gloria's story is based on a real person, Darren Greenfield, a homeless war veteran who used to sit on the pavement at the top of Waverley Steps, one of the many for whom war was not over when the fighting was done. I wrote and illustrated A Cat Called Waverley for Darren, but also for all the countless homeless people in our world, said Gloria, who has written around 70 books. I wrote it to say you are not forgotten, you are the yardstick by which we measure our own kindness and humanity. We all have the same need for shelter, for food and for people to care about us. Therefore, we are all responsible for ensuring that every one of us has a safe place that we can all call home. That article was by Greg Russell. Recorded from the National on the 5th of October 2021. From the Culture section. The Tracksuit Newlyweds Who Split World Opinion in Half. By Roxanne Surishan. The world was riven last week when pictures emerged that split opinion asunder. Well, the world of Instagram was, that is. A source of such contention, a couple got married in their tracksuits. Videographer Sarah Gonzalez of Wildwood Films shared controversial footage in which the bride can be seen wearing a white veil, crop top, tracky bottoms and trainers. The groom has on an all-black hoodie and tracksuit bottom set. If you're thinking Shellsuit Bob meets Vicky Pollard, be assured the happy couple could not have looked more glam had they been wearing the full wedding works. I smell a whiff of self-promotion on the part of the videographer. If so, it is worked. In a flurry of posts, the Instagram com- commemorant exchanged views on the nuances and finer points of wedding regalia. The videographer kicked things off with, I love when couples say screw tradition and find unique and fun ways to show their personalities on their wedding day and start new trends of their own. I predict sweatsuits will be an up-and-coming trend this year and I'm here for it, she added. While Gonzalez was a fan, those who joined in the discourse were not so sure. If I'm paying over £1,000 for a gown, you'd better believe I'm wearing it until I die, wrote one follower, obviously not deterred by the impracticalities of day-to-day life in a posh frock. Another opinion, personally, that would be my worst nightmare. I have a Pinterest board with a few hundred pictures of potential wedding dresses I'm not even engaged yet. I'm looking forward to be a princess so much. Yet there were more who thought this trend should catch on. I'm obsessed with this, said one. 
As a change into after the ceremony to be comfortable thing, I get it. All for it, agreed a second. Such is the passion for debate on the febrile world of Instagram. But often it's what's going on in the background of a picture that is more interesting. Looked beyond the tracksuit-clad bride and groom and their the guests, all dressed to the nines. Wear what you like on your big day, but at least tip off the rest of the company so they also have the luxury of ditching the faff of formal attire and pitching up in leisure wear. Heaven knows we've got used to dressing down over the past 18 months. This has hit home for me last week when I found myself getting ready for a night out at the Scottish Press Awards. Dress code, black tie, warned the invitation. So I duly wheeled out the big black dress and shoes with the mere suggestion of a heel which nevertheless challenged my ability to walk. Despite being out of my comfort zone of joggy bottoms and slippers, it was good, if a little strange, to be out and meeting colleagues and old friends. Yes, there were some fancy frocks and the usual wall of tuxedos, but it was refreshing to see many dressed in far more relaxed style. On reflection, maybe I could have worn black leggings and a t-shirt and got away with it. Not sure about the baffies, though. That article was by Roxanne Surushan. From the National, Thursday the 7th of October 2021, from the Sports section. Scottish Premiership set for month-long shutdown to allow for 2022 Qatar World Cup Finals, by David Irvin. The Scottish Premiership is set for a month-long shutdown to allow for the 2022 Qatar World Cup Finals to take place, according to reports. The BBC this morning claimed Scotland's domestic top flight will be halted for 34 days while the World Cup is played next year. It's thought that Scottish Premiership clubs are being consulted over plans for 16 rounds of fixtures being played between July the 30th and November the 13th before a pause in the league campaign. Fixtures would not resume until December the 17th at the earliest, falling one day before the World Cup final. As a result of the major halt in league fixtures, it would be the weekend of May the 27th, 28th, before the final match day. The Scottish Cup final would likely be moved to a June date, with the Premiership playoff final expected to be played in the first week of the month too. The League Cup would be played to a finish in February under the proposed plans, which have not yet been approved. The BBC report that lower league fixtures lists are unlikely to be displayed disrupted with play expected to be continued as the World Cup is played. That article was by David Irvin. From The National, Thursday the 7th of October 2021, from the Sports Section. SFA unveil vast anti-discrimination action plan put in place in response to Glenn Kamara racism row by Matthew Lindsay. The racist abuse that Glenn Kamara was subjected to by Andrzej Kudela when Rangers played Slavia Prague in a Europa League last 16 match at Ibrox back in March was one of the saddest incidents witnessed in Scottish football for many years. But some good has, after months of behind-the-scenes discussions involving all the major stakeholders in the game in this country, come from it. The SFA convened a series of virtual summits in the aftermath to discuss what more could be done to address the issue here, and their Equality and Diversity Board, EDAB, have used the findings from those discussions to put together a wide-ranging anti-discrimination action plan. Scottish players who are found guilty of racial or homophobic abuse towards an opponent face being banned for up to a year, the most severe punishment in Europe, 
if the strict new disciplinary measures proposed in the plan are given the go-ahead. However, there are many, many more changes which already have been and will be in the future implemented as a result. David McArdle, the SFA Equality and Diversity Manager who sits on EDAB, is hopeful the plan will go a long way towards ensuring the next generation of coach, footballer and supporter in Scotland will not experience the same sort of problems which their predecessors have in the past. We have already made a vast amount of changes to the game as a result of the anti-racism summits that we had after the Glen Kamara incident, he said. But we have an anti-discrimination action plan that has just been signed off by the board. We have set out a clear plan of what we are going to do. The SFA co-opted Marvin Bartley of Livingston and Leanne Ross of Glasgow City onto EDAB following the Kamara incident to offer an insight into the difficulties that black and female players must overcome in the sport on a daily basis. McArdle feels their contributions to the process were important. I am a white man, he said, so I don't understand what someone like Marvin has gone through in his life and goes through during a game of football. So we brought him in and asked him questions. What are the challenges? What do you feel? What do you want to see change? We brought in Leanne to let us know what the female perception is in terms of football and the challenges she feels as a female coach and player. That allowed us to make the changes that we need to make. Education the number of black, Asian and ethnic minority BAME players and coaches in the Scottish game, racist abuse on social media websites and supported disorder in the stands are among the areas covered by the plan. We are going to do education around the country, said McArdle. We are going to work with school kids and with grassroots clubs to educate children about anti-discrimination, especially about racism and homophobia. We are creating an e-learning programme that is pretty much going to be made available to every coach in Scotland free of charge. We are at the final stage of that. We launched a mental health e-learning course, which has 12,000 coaches to go through it in a year. We would expect the anti-racism one to be every bit as popular. We are trying to educate as much of the game as possible. We are doing a lot to make sure people know what monkey chants are. We are still in a day and age where people don't understand what impact that has on someone, how it makes people feel. Xenophobia, shouting to somebody to go back to Nigeria or Cameroon or whatever too, it is a form of racism as well. We are trying to make sure everybody is fully aware of what the expectations are, what these words and phrases mean. Then there is no coming back from it. They have been told it is racist. If they then say it, they know what will happen. They can't plead innocence. We are doing an awful lot to create a more understanding community and environment and a better opportunity for people to enjoy the game. Rather than having a silly minority of individuals making the headlines that we don't want to see in Scottish football. He added, the plan looks at how we are going to support the capturing of discrimination around social media. The SFA is leading the way in speaking to social media companies and government about how legislation and rules can change within that. Also, how can we support the clubs in dealing with any fan behaviour? How can the SFA be an influence on it? 
We support a vast number of players with mental health issues each year, especially in the senior game. How can we ensure that it is supported further for any player who receives any form of discrimination? The SFA are satisfied that the number of BMAE players and coaches in Scotland football is represented of wider society. However, McArdle accepts that it is very much not the case at the highest level of the game. We have identified that and recognised something has to be put in place, he said. All 18 of the SFA member clubs are currently assessed by the governing body on an annual basis, and McArdle revealed that anti-discrimination measures are now a major part of the national licensing system. We have put really in-depth equality standards on all our clubs now, he said. Every single board in the country has now stated that they are responsible for discrimination within their club. They all have a zero-tolerance approach for discrimination within their club, from supporters to players to staff. All of them have really robust and correct equality policies. Over the next few years, what we are asking them to do is just going to increase. From next year, every single club in Scotland is going to have to do equality monitoring of their environment, from supporters all the way down to who they employ. We will now know exactly what clubs are below the representation threshold that we are challenging the home of the Scottish game to be. At that point, we can go to them and say, why don't you have an 8% representation of ethnic minorities within your club? Why don't you have a single disabled person attending your matches? What is the reason behind that? The COVID-19 outbreak in the March of last year delayed that 10-year programme being rolled out. It was put on hold, so the SFA could deal with the more pressing problems caused by the pandemic. Then, the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in the United States sparked worldwide anti-racism protests. We went right back to page one again, said McArdle. We asked, is this right for the environment that has now been created by what happened in Minnesota? Does it still meet the 10-year down-the-line challenge? To be fair, it did. We seem to be having the right conversations with the right people. That article was by Matthew Lindsay. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.